This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run on BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng. It's time for the SM Show. This is the show where we rant about what's working in markets and what's not. I've got Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, independent forex strategist, here with us this week. Good morning, Dr. Suresh. Good morning. So I think we want to focus on the ringgit this week, Julian, especially since there's been a lot of uh, flip-flop when it comes to um, the US Federal Reserve and their intentions of raising rates and how that relates to the ringgit back home. So uh, Dr. Suresh, we started the year with uh, not a lot of people betting for a rate rise and then they switched that bet uh, to a likely rate rise and now is back down to no again because yeah. of the poor job numbers. Uh, yeah. What do you make of this? I mean, the, the non-farm payrolls number uh, last week, actually, that was disappointing. But, you know, I think people are looking too much into the non-farm payrolls number itself. Uh, one is actually that just one data that was actually below expectations, and there's a huge amount of scaling back of expectations. But if you look in the last six months, it's a non-farm payrolls numbers on every month has been beating consensus. So in that sense, I think that, you know, one, I mean, one bad number does not tell you actually that it's all over. But my, my only it's very con- short term. Yeah, right? my only concern is actually it could be a seasonal factor. It could be actually a base factor. We're really not sure. But I don't think actually it takes away that, that, that consensus in the market that eventually there will be a rate rise. At least for this point in time, actually, that weak number has scaled back expectation. But I'm not, I'm not ruling out the fact that actually there will be an eventually rate hike in the U.S. itself. Now, you think that uh, there is a fair amount of misconception about what the rise of the U.S. interest rate, what, what does it mean to uh, the rest of us, uh, the rest of the people in the world? You know, the, the textbook view, or even actually if you look at any analyst or any economist, the first thing is that they mention is that if the U.S. raises rates, uh, interest rates uh, spreads are actually going to narrow or widen against emerging markets, and there's going to be a capital outflow. And so that's, that's the usual textbook theory. But actually, that is not really the truth. Because you must bear in mind that actually, if the U.S. raises interest rates, the first thing to come into account from a trading perspective is that the cost of funding a trade goes up. If the Fed raises rates by 25 basis points from quarter percent to 0.5%, it means the cost of funding a trade, borrowing dollars, paying higher interest rates, and it has to be accompanied by higher expectations of returns in any asset classes, whether it's in stocks or bonds or properties or emerging markets or developed markets. That's the crux of the issue. So it means as a global portfolio manager, if I'm actually funding my trade with dollar itself, the cost of my funding of the trade has gone up, naturally I would expect returns to be a lot more higher. So that's why you notice actually that people, when they expect higher interest, uh, higher returns, they actually look for markets where there's actually potential for growth, stocks or bonds or anything else. So mm-hmm. that's the main issue. So it's not naturally saying that the US raises rates and then no one else raises rates and then actually interest rate spreads actually tend to narrow or widen. But, but yeah. Dr. Suresh, how much would rates have to go up for that to make sense, for the cost of the trade to go up to the point where you're thinking about the market has to give uh, a certain amount of return? I mean, if you buy a local bond, uh, I'm talking about an MGS, five-year or maybe a three-years, actually, naturally, it's coming close to around 4%. Uh, 
uh, bonds actually yields that you get actually there. And now you have the fact that actually if your cost of funding has gone up by 25 basis points, you have naturally a return of actually 3.5%. Then you take into account the conversion of your cost of, uh, of converting your ringgit proceeds into dollars. If it gets eroded uh, and it erodes and offsets the 3% gain on the net gain from the underlying trade, then the trade does not make sense at all. So naturally you have to have some sort of gains in the currency to make the trade worthwhile. So, so the, the, you, what you're referring to is actually called the carry trade, right? Where they exactly. borrow cheap US do- dollars and cheaper uh, interest rates to invest in emerging markets like yeah. Malaysia. But has that trade worked over the past few years? Because we haven't uh, accounted for the loss of these uh, emerging market currencies, which make the trade uh, uh, pretty ugly, actually, if you ask me. Yeah. If, if, you, if you look actually the cycle of dollar strength that actually occurred uh, way back in the second quarter of last year onwards, uh, when the dollar gained ground, and that was the beginning of the capital outflows itself. Because uh, a lot of global fund managers uh, witnessed the fact that, you know, merging market currencies were not gaining ground. They were not actually outperforming the dollar. And the returns actually from these markets were not compensating actually the expectations of rising rates in the U.S. and the strength of the dollar. So they naturally pulled out. But during that period, there were pockets of actually frontier markets they were looking at. You know, if you, if you look at markets in Africa, actually, which is giving you returns of maybe 10% or 12%, it tends to offset the FX losses itself. But emerging markets in Asia, like in China, or even India, even Malaysia, actually, that gains were not witnessed at all. So a lot of global fund managers looked at frontier markets in the second half of the last year. In the beginning of this quarter itself, when the ringgit actually un, uh, gained significantly, there was a huge amount of flows coming back. But the second quarter has witnessed an outflow itself, which means, again, the dollar strand, even though it has gradually eased in pace, but naturally, actually, the catalyst in the domestic market were just not there for them to get back into the market. And I'm assuming all this has to do with bonds rather than stocks. Does, does this interest rate decision affect, um, the carry trade decision affect stocks as well? Uh, to a certain extent, but the fact that there's a lot more variables for a stock itself uh, because it has to be looked at from a sector basis, regional as well as actually Asia as well as or maybe Europe or even actually looking at in context of a certain industry itself. So there's a lot more parameters if you're actually looking at stocks itself. Uh, if you look at banking stocks, will you see valuation of banking stocks in Malaysia a lot more cheaper than in Indonesia or India. And then you've got to compare actually where the projections and earnings per growth for these shares are. Like for bonds, it's a totally different ball game actually. There are funds that are dedicated to emerging market bonds itself and whether it outperforms the indexes itself. So it's a lot more uh, straightforward for bonds but it's a lot more uh, weighing of parameters in a sectoral basis for equities. More, more complex for stocks. Yes. Okay, so just l- let me get this right. So when you are thinking about, say, uh, the next couple of months uh, and, and your trades in emerging markets, for instance, how closely do you watch whatever signals the Federal Reserve is uh, giving out? Or do you just think that's noise that you don't, you don't need to look at? And, and also added on top of that, uh, what you're saying sounds really grim because in the past, when uh, US interest rates were very cheap, uh, they put their money in here and they have not made any money. And now that there is an expectation of rising US interest rates, uh, is it going to be even worse for fund f- funds flows uh, in these parts of the world? I mean, th- there's, two, there's two stories to the cheap dollar story itself, uh, after the Fed actually had the quantitative easing, uh, you notice that a lot of Asian corporates, okay, uh, they actually established a lot of uh, 
offshore institutions uh, and shell companies in London and even actually the, in the Middle East, or even actually in, 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 in the Cayman Islands. But that was actually an alternative for them to fund the dollars itself, to get the cheap dollars. And they used that cheap dollars to actually fund a lot of investments in Asia, mm-hmm. properties, stocks, bonds. You could see a flood of money coming to Asia. But the moment where the rates in the U.S. are going up and the strength of the dollar is actually picking up, notice much of uh, or many of the Asian corporates tend to find their cash flows are being mismatched. Uh, you have a dollar strength as one part. You have a rising rates in the U.S. At the same time, actually, see, uh, investments in Asia actually are not performing as expected. So, which means actually there's an asset and liability mismatch here itself. So, which means there's a strain on their balance sheet. And that's why I'm not surprised that actually earnings growth or even actually the corporate outlook for a lot of companies in emerging Asia are looking very grim. So, in, in naturally what it tells you actually is if you're hedged yourself, it's fine. But the fact is actually, if your asset classes are underperforming in this part of the world which we invested, it cannot compensate for the cost of funding uh, or higher interest rates in the US, then it looks a lot more bleak for them. And a lot of things actually center around this thing called the carry trade, where the very, very cheap US interest rates over the past few years have incentivized a lot of global fund managers to borrow and bring their money to uh, the into the emerging markets, including Malaysia. And that trade has not actually worked because uh, when you invest in these parts of the world, our currencies have weakened, uh, which uh, caused losses for a lot of these uh, tactics and a lot of these strategies, right? And now that the U.S. interest rates are on its way up. Uh, it has to at some point. Um, this makes the situation even worse for emerging markets. So a lot of this actually hinges on where the U.S. interest rates are going to go. And I guess this is the billion-dollar, trillion-dollar yeah. question, right? I, I think actually the cost of funding goes up by another two clips of 25 basis points each. Uh, it moves up to actually to 75 basis points, which means actually your dollar LIBOR, the London Interbank of rates, naturally goes up close to around like 0.8%. So, so uh, that will be the main main tool that is being used for the dollar funding itself. So if it goes up close to around like for a three-month LIBOR rates, which is around 0.8% or even a six months, which is close to 1%, naturally actually uh, you expect gains on stocks or bonds to be in excess of that to fund that trade, which is viable itself. Otherwise, actually, it doesn't make sense. So naturally, what's very important here is actually if, if the cost of funding goes up in the US because of interest rate hike and so on, uh, you naturally need asset classes in this part of the world to be a lot more attractive and how do you make it attractive you need to make it attractive via policy changes when you say you you mean all the emerging market yes. governments right the, the yes. government yes. policy okay. and and we have seen that dr suresh i mean around the region you've seen indonesia move you've seen thailand india and not yeah. to mention um but not malaysia so Malaysia has been quite a steady in its, uh, <laughs> in yeah, its I mean, uh, state Well, I, I heard a conversation yesterday that uh, Malaysia um, has made our currency weakening policy uh, so easy when <laughs> other countries are trying to, uh, trying, Japan is trying to do it, Australia is trying to do it, but uh, the ringgit uh, just uh, naturally <laughs> weakened just like that. And uh, that's supposed to be good for our country because we saw the trade numbers jumping 21%, exports jumped 21%. Is this supposed to be good for the nation? You know, uh, if, if you look from a real sector itself, uh, a weakening currency, any textbook theory would say that it actually translates into higher exports. But the fact is actually the, the global economy has altered so much. 
we can't use this policy of cheapening your currency to actually pump up exports. Uh, it can be done for a very young developing economy, but in the case of Malaysia, which is actually moving closer towards actually a higher income nation, having those type of uh, policies actually are very much actually old school. Uh, it, you can't you can't cheapen your currency to export your way. And bear in mind that our largest trading partner is actually China. And are you telling me that actually you're going to cheapen your currency lock and step actually with what the Chinese one is doing? That that will be doomsday, right? If exactly. they actually have a weakening yeah. uh, policy. But going back to your um, idea about fund flows uh, as a result of a possible a potential U.S. interest rate hike, that is extremely ominous. Uh, that means that a lot of funds will flow out of emerging markets. Yeah, of course. Uh, if if you don't have a policy action uh, in monetary policy in specifically itself, next there'll be a fund outflow. But if you notice the last few weeks, a lot of funds have actually moved to Indonesia, even actually rest of Asia, but it has not come into the emerging markets such as Malaysia, especially in the equity market, which tells you actually a lot of fund managers don't see a catalyst for them to come in. Uh, which means that they find that the stocks and bonds are not attractive enough, as well as actually they price in expectations of further weakening in the currency. Because, you know, when, when any fund manager that comes to the market, he has to find the currency and the stocks and the asset classes attractive enough. And there's a peak for the weakness itself. And then they know actually that's the worst case scenario. And we could actually lock in our gains. But when you don't have expectations where the currency continues to weaken further, then you find actually that trade does not make sense at all. So yeah. when you say catalyst, Dr. Suresh, you're yeah. talking about any kind of signal that, you know, there will be some kind of future action. Exactly. That's what I mean. Is it? Uh, for, for, for specifically for funds itself, uh, it'll be closely tied towards monetary policy. Okay. Uh, but th there is another exogenous factor, right, and uh, somewhat a light at the end of the tunnel because Janet Yellen says and the f entire Fed says that uh, they are data dependent when they decide to raise rates. And that this data dependent just simply means an, uh, a recovering economy. Doesn't the United States as a market and economy float all boats, uh, which means that if their economy is rising and that causes the Fed to raise rates, uh, that would be good for us as well because they will buy stuff from us, right? Uh, so our stocks and uh, possibly our bonds would go up. Yeah, uh, th there are two answers to your question itself. Uh, the first one is actually the, uh, the problem is actually that Malaysia is not US-centric anymore. Okay, we are very China-centric. Our trade, our investments, our flows are very chi China-centric. But which does China sell to the US? Yeah. Of course, they do yeah. actually. They, uh, so there is that, that, that indirect... That below effects yeah. comes from a third channel. Is yeah. it? it doesn't come with a direct channel itself. Uh, about 20 years ago, we were much American-centric itself. So that spillover effects are very strongly correlated. But we don't find that. The other answer to your question is that... Uh, in the U.S., the problem is that it's a free capitalist system. There's a big debate in the U.S. monetary policy whether monetary policy in the U.S. has to be discretionary-based or rule-based. Uh, if it's discretionary-based, it has to be actually on a consensus with all the Fed governing members. But if it's rule-based, it's like, you know, unemployment reaches a certain level, uh, inflation certain, reaches a certain level, and we start moving a monetary policy. But the fact is actually in the U.S., they've not move towards that. It's very discretionary based still. So that's why the signal that gets sent out by Yellen to a lot of markets is that it becomes so confusing because yes, on one part it's data dependent, it's rule based on certain datas, but it's very discretionary based eventually. And that's why we find that actually it's quite difficult to put a finger where exactly monetary policy in the US goes. But it was never the case like this about 25 or 30 years ago. 
It was actually very rule-based. When, when you touch a certain threshold level of unemployment or inflation, naturally markets price in there's a rate hike. But in this case, after the quantitative easing and the 2008 crisis, it has become very discretionary-based. And that's what markets are actually facing a lot more volatility because of that. Yeah, because there's no certainty as to what, okay. Exactly. And do yeah. you, so do you feel the goalposts have changed, are changing too too quickly? Often. But yeah, too quickly from last year to the end of the year to now the top of this year and now right now, yeah. it just everything keeps changing. A bit yeah. schizophrenic right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why uh, when, when you actually looked at a lot of academic papers or even the Fed uh, studies itself, the natural non-accelerating inflationary rate of unemployment which was really actually close to around 6%. But you look at unemployment in the US, it's actually close to around 4.7%, which means actually they keep changing it and we, we are, the markets are really confused. Where, where exactly is the point that you need to see? Now, so uh, just to summarize your views, you expect a one or two um, a quarter of a basis points rise in the US uh, interest rates. Give us an update. Where are you putting your money right now? Because if uh, US interest rates go up, bonds come down, and then funds go out, it's not good for equities. There are negative interest rates around the world. Uh, perhaps gold is gold is going up. Uh, what would you recommend as an I mean, asset allocation? If, if I was actually a fund manager, uh, naturally, actually, given that expectations of rising rates in the US, I would still pick certain emerging markets uh, where emerging markets that actually have actually indicated or signaled some sort of policy catalyst, which makes... Bonds or equities? Bonds, both. Yeah. Bonds, bonds equities, equities, equities okay. as well as actually FX. Uh, parking my, my money, actually, in certain currencies as deposits and keeping a certain allocation in stocks and bonds, which are still attractive, where it's a function of policy changes. That means, actually, there's a easing monetary policy and pro-growth policies. But I wouldn't put my money where countries where there's not enough changes or there's no pro-growth policies. Uh, what are those countries? Can we name and shape? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be putting it here, actually, in Malaysia, because there, I don't find, actually, there's a there's a massive uh, change in policy catalyst itself. So China? I need... Uh, China, not yet. I wouldn't put there, actually. But I'll be putting it in Singapore, uh, Indonesia, India, uh, Thailand. Uh, I find that actually their policy changes, even Philippines for the matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but countries where they don't have a policy catalyst, they don't move on monetary policy or fiscal policy, that means actually they are lo- really lagging behind. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.